You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. My name is Teddy Rowe. I'm the events coordinator here at the Ivy Bookshop. Um, I am outside right now in the frigid cold, but I'm very happy to be introducing this wonderful event um, that we are partnering with the Pratt Library for. Um, we do a lot of events here at the Ivy, but we, it's been great. One of the things about the uh, past few months is being able to partner with uh, the, the Pratt Libraries and to um, join them or just so many wonderful events, both um, of Maryland history and then bringing in authors from around the world. And so we have been super thankful at the Ivy to um, be able to sit in and enjoy all of the wonderful events that the Pratt has um, offered the community. We have a really excellent event tonight with C. Frazier Smith. Um, he's, he's got a wide net of um, uh, journalism that, to talk about. Um, Tracy has his book, I believe, right there. And so I'm going to hand it off back to her and, and she can uh, get things rolling. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Teddy. Um, it's a pleasure to be partnered with the Ivy Bookshop um, before the pandemic and during the pandemic. And congratulations again on the new store. Um, so hi, everyone. As Teddy said, I am Tracy Diamond. I am the Adult Services Coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And before we officially start, uh, I wanted to fill you in on some of the upcoming um, events and services at the Pratt. So we have sidewalk service at 14 of our libraries, so you can still access physical materials as well as mobile printing. Including tonight, we have an excellent slate of conversations um, to close us out of 2020. On Sunday, we have Stephen Leva and Evie Shockley reading for the annual Cave Canem event. And on December 15th, we have Danielle Evans and Laura Vandenberg talking about Danielle's new book, The Office of Historical Corrections. Details about everything I've mentioned can be found on prattlibrary.org. And now some logistics. If you're watching in Zoom, please click the chat bubble um, if you have questions for the speakers. And if you're watching on Facebook, please post in the comments. Um, I'll be monitoring both, um, so your questions will be answered. So tonight, we're thrilled to talk about Fraser Smith's book, The Daily Miracle. Fraser Smith was a reporter for the Jersey Journal and the Providence Journal before his decades-long affiliation with the Baltimore Sun as a reporter and then Sunday op-ed columnist. In addition, while in Baltimore, he became a commentator for WYPR, as well as a weekly columnist for the Daily Record, the regional business newspaper based in Baltimore. The Daily Miracle, a memoir of newspapering is his fourth book. He is joined by Liz Bowie, education reporter for the Baltimore Sun and Tom Linthicum, retired journalist and adjunct faculty member at the Philip Merrill College of Journalism at the University of Maryland. So we're really in for an illuminating discussion about the future of journalism and what that means for our communities. So please welcome Fraser Smith, Tom Linthicum, and Liz Bowie. Thank you, Tracy, very much. 
it's a uh, it's a pleasure to be here at the Pratt. I know that to say being here is not exactly uh, we're not exactly here, but uh, we're connecting with you, and um, we all appreciate how much the Pratt has been doing through all of this to keep us sort of connected with each other. And I'm certainly happy to be here to talk about my book. The uh, sort of the arc of what I'm hoping we'll do tonight uh, will lead from what we know about newspapers and their history and our movement slowly and steadily or and often at great speed to whatever the net the next platform for news in our democracy will be if it's not going to be the Sun or the or some other newspaper that you cherish what is it going to be uh, and so we, we hope that'll be the, uh, the circularity of what we're doing here tonight. And I, I want to begin just briefly talking about uh, titles. I, I will get to the Daily Miracle. But I, I wanted to also tell you that at one point I thought about, I thought about the title being The Last Newspaper. And uh, at that time, we weren't exactly there. We were, we were moving toward a time when we were not going to have nearly as many papers as we needed to have. There, there have been people who have referred to newspapers as the backbone of democracy. And the, uh, the backbone, unfortunately, has been getting a little bit weak. And uh, but it, So anyway, I, I rejected that uh, title. And then I, I thought about... Uh, I thought about this, uh, always working. Uh, so it, it's a, it was a story, the story I was gonna tell was the story of newspapers and newspaper reporters. And, uh, and this actually came from uh, an event early in my newspaper life. I, I went to uh, Washington for the essentially the national wake after JFK was assassinated. I wasn't assigned to go there. I was very green. I had really just started a newspaper, but I wanted to go. And uh, when I returned, um, I was talking to some of my friends in the newsroom, telling them where I'd been over the weekend. And an editor overheard me and said, you, had, you have to write something. And I had never even thought for a minute since I was so green that anybody would think about asking me to, to write about what I had seen. Uh, so I, but anyway, I did the best I could. I, I wrote a piece and it was mostly in first person, I think, uh, which was quite rare in those days. Uh, but anyway, I wrote the piece and I turned it in and his first question was, after, after having read it quickly, he said, where are the people? And, uh, and I just kind of stood there and he said, you were out there for five hours and you didn't talk to anybody? What were you doing? And I said, well, I didn't think I was working. And he said, you're always working. Well, so that so there was a title. And actually, I, I thought it was, would have been pretty good. But uh, an, another possibility that was too remote to really consider for very long was um, All Saints Day. And that, too, really came out of a story. Uh, it came out of an obituary, actually, about a woman who took a wreath around her parish on All Saints Day 
and people would pin dollar bills or $5 bills on the wreath and she would then take it to the priest. And so we interviewed uh, one of her sons who said that the only thing she ever wanted to do in, in her life was to die on All Saints Day and she did. So I've had editors who would say that, that this these were amazing news stories. That, that was the headline he put on. But anyway, I rejected all of those. And I went to uh, the, the uh, I, I I went to the to the uh, Daily Miracle, and I chose it actually again because I knew everybody every every one of my colleagues would know what that was all about. So I would at least have that much name recognition for my book. So anyway, here's the here's the intro introduction to the book. We called it the Daily we called it the Daily Miracle. There were so many exacting people doing so many demanding jobs. How in the world did it ever come out every day? <coughs> sometimes, I hope not too often, sometimes we said miracle in a mocking tone. Some editor or other having messed with a brilliant lead, first paragraph of the story, or cut the best quote, idiots. <laughs> Of course, it wasn't a miracle. The newspaper wasn't a miracle at all. And, edit and editors were not idiots. What readers took to the breakfast table sprang from a remarkable union of hot metal, paper, ink, and most important, I think, judgment. Every day's paper was the result of extraordinary commitment, craftsmanship, and experience nor did the paper flow from a single day's work. Decades of thinking, more than decades, of thinking and rethinking were behind every page. Every copy was the result of constant efforts to be better, to be perfect, actually. That was the goal. Unlike the car manufacturer that allows a faulty ignition switch to go uncorrected or dismantle the pollution control system, Good newspapers printed their errors every day. A culture of perfection shaped newspapers. Uh, a culture of perfection shaped them. A state of the city or state or nation arrived at your home not once a year, but every day. Problems to solve, priorities to set, life and death, stability and change, without fear or favor, light for all. The newspaper itself was not immune to change. Nothing new here in the manufacturing line. Weren't the buggy and the buggy whip manufacturers eclipsed by change by the automobile? No big deal. But the buggy and the whip had no role in governing, preserving democracy. Newspapers, were the backbone of self-government, the oxygen-carrying capillaries of the body politic. All over the country, whirling behemoth presses produced not just news, but the marching orders of daily life, a sun, a journal, a mirror, even a picayune or a bee, each one a marvel, if not a miracle. 
not every paper, to be sure, measured up to its own or industry standard. Some allowed owners or political powers to insinuate themselves into the news. A few denied coverage to individuals or causes they did not favor. Editors sometimes served their own interests. But many or most operated under something like the sun's light for all promise. Even the less good papers were valuable, offering sounding, sounding boards a medium of comparison. In the era of Trump, who calls reporters enemies of the people and purveyors of fake news, the big three national newspapers have gained strength. The threatening change in tone and style of national leadership drove citizens to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. At the same time, exemplary, exemplary regional paper, the papers most voters read sell, fell under the killing presence of the internet. The backbone weakened. Many, with many papers went dark. Some survived as shells. Ghosts of the enterprise charged with monitoring government and equipping citizens. We are warned today against nostalgia. We must move forward. Yes but we can and must look back as well. Contrary to movie or TV drawn images, the newsroom's legacy is intense commitment to the work, fierce devotion to the principles of dealing with people fairly, dogged insistence on transparency and the people's right to know. The irony is that we seldom showed our personal devotion to these standards. So I'm stepping up to do that now. I'm bold enough to do that right now. We were proudly, devoutly silent about ourselves in an overhyped world. We trusted readers to know. We worked hard to get it right, to find the best available version of the truth, and then to do it again the next day and the next. This book chronicles a reporter's half century three newspaper career. It serves also unavoidably as a cultural and political history of this country. And it serves also perhaps as an obituary. My newspaper colleagues and I bent eagerly to the goal of perfection, knowing it was a dream. In and out of the newsroom, we found kindred souls, men and women committed to grand objectives including support of democracy. They were, in some cases, mirrors for us. We admired them. We marveled at their commitment. We saw ourselves in them. We introduced them to their neighbors. The world needed to know what we knew. So that's the end of the introduction to the book. And now I'm, I'm hoping we can uh, move on a little bit and get uh, some commentary from my good friends here. Um, I, I'm wondering actually, Liz or Thomas, if either one of you uh, 
have any early remembrances of, of your start? Of, of our, my start in the in the newspaper business? Yes, yes. You know, early stories or uh, confrontations with editors or, or whatever. Well, um, gee, I never conf had a confrontation with an editor my whole career, right, Liz? But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the, this one story that comes back to me was um, how I got started, which was career day at my high school. And it was just just so happened that the television critic for the Atlanta Constitution, which was my hometown paper, was a member of that uh, Kiwanis Club. And he was one of the people who came to the school and he asked if anybody might be interested in journalism. And no one was. But my uh, I was taking my my English teacher that year was the newspaper sponsor. And she got to know me a little bit. And she said, well, I think this, uh, you might take this guy under your wing. He shows a little bit of ability. He can write and whatever. So the guy takes me downtown to the, uh, to the paper. We walked to the newsroom and he'd been there forever. So everybody knew him and he knew them. And he introduced me to all these people. And I looked around at what they were doing and they were arguing and they were uh, pointing out uh, pictures that were moving on the wire and the latest story and there were bells ringing on the teletype machines and people cop yelling copy and people running back and forth. And I thought, this is amazing. This is, you can get paid for doing this? I had no idea. And I was, uh, I was hooked from the, from the very beginning. And by the time I left the newsroom at the end of that day, uh, they said, what are you interested in? I said, sports. And they said, well, do you want to be a sports stringer? I said, what's a stringer? They said, well, it means you go to the game and we might pay you 20 bucks and you call in the score and whatever. And so that was it. Uh, from, from that point on, um, I, was, I was completely hooked and captivated by this business. But I remember I, I had no idea that such jobs uh, existed. I, I guess I'd never given much thought to the Daily Miracle and how it came together, but seeing it um, from, from the ground up if you will, was just uh, amazing for me. Liz, you have thoughts? I don't. I want to put you on the spot here. We can move. Um, on. Well, I'll just tell a quick story, which was I started out at a small at small newspapers and uh, a small newspaper on the Eastern Shore, and moved to the News American, which then folded pretty quickly one day, and I was out of a job, and I didn't have a lot of self confidence and. Um, but I applied to the Sun because I didn't really want to move out of town. So that was the only other option. And, but I didn't dare think that I would actually get a job. And um, I, the first person I talked to was Tom Limpicum. And he, in fact, hired me, um, thank God. Um, but I remember that first day, um, my mother had worked for the um, Evening Sun. And I remember after being hired the first day, walking up the steps and looking at the um, Baltimore Sun sign across the brick building, the front of the brick building. And just thinking that I had like landed the most magical, in the most magical place. And how did this actually happen to me? Um, and it's 30 some years later and I still wake up every day and, and, and I'm really eager to write another story um, somehow. Um, it is a really uh, captivating 
exciting profession um, that's hard to let go of for a lot of us. You know, I, I'm, uh, I'm inclined to tell my same uh, beginning story, actually, uh, somewhat embarrassing, actually, looking back, although I'm, I'm proud of myself, actually, for doing it. I applied for the, to the New York Times. I, I had no experience. I had not been to journalism school, but, uh, but my mother always told me that I had to show initiative, whatever I was doing. So I thought, well, I mean, I did get some counsel from somebody who knew newspapers. She said, well, what you're supposed to do is go to Peoria and spend the next five years learning how to do this, and then you can apply to a bigger paper. So I said, I was actually just coming back from uh, Japan. I was still in the Air Force. And I thought I had to figure out a way to reduce those five years <laughs> to something a little more manageable. <laughs> so I showed up on the first day and uh, of course they quick, quickly abused me of that idea. But um, one, of the, one of the personnel people that showed me the door said that she knew somebody in Jersey City that an editor there who sometimes had a job and maybe I should go and see her friend, which of course I did. And in the same day, I was, I was a reporter at the Jersey journal. So, you know, I mean, if you have sometimes being naive and, and uh, uh, underinformed is an old bad. So I, I mean, I look back on that with a great um, appreciation for the, for Eugene Farrell who hired me to do that. Um, so anyway, we, we all have survived those early days and, um, and here we are. I mean, I, I know a lot of my friends and probably, uh, the two of you would agree with me that we ended up in newspapers and, uh, worked in them through 30 days that might, when we look back on the history of journalism, be thought of as sort of the, the high point. Of, of newspaper importance in our in our society. I mean, you know, when, when the two, when all of us, when the three of us think about things like the number of, of foreign bureaus that the Baltimore Sun had, eight or nine, as I recall, they were all over the world. Uh, we, we had at least 15 people in the Washington Bureau. Today, I don't think we even have a Washington Bureau. We, we get sort of Stringer stories from people that are that we have uh, arrangements with. So, where we were in terms of, of money and cash flow uh, is, is totally different now, as we're all well aware. Um, in some ways, even though we were involved in it and working there, working at, at, at papers, the whole thing just sort of fell off the table. <laughs> very dramatically, I think, for, for a lot of us who were working there. And, and in part, it's because I would just say from, for myself, I just didn't pay enough attention to the uh, finances of the newspapers. I do remember various things that were said that indicated that, 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 that there was trouble looming ahead, but it, it wasn't something that I expected to happen right away. So, um, as we're, as we're looking down the road from where we are now, and we see papers struggling to survive, um, I'm wondering actually if 
if all of us, of all of us newspaper readers, not just reporters, but if we stop and think about the degree to which a newspaper was a community institution, it was like it was like the school department or or the police department or city hall. It it was an important part of daily life. You, uh, it sort of gave you your kind of personal marching order. And some of what we could do as newspapers was was beyond what what uh, a, a city like Baltimore could do because you know we were just out there freelancing and looking around for whatever might be happening. And in those days, of course, some of us had beats, which I don't think exist anymore. Oh yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah, they do. We do. We have beats. We have one, I believe. <laughs> no, no, I no, but, but we don't have. I mean. We used to have somebody that would cover housing development. You know, I mean, uh, two or three stories would come out of out of uh, the the housing department of City Hall. Um, I I think my sense anyway, of, as as a reader, is that everybody does everything over there. It's in a sense, it's like uh, being on general. The entire newsroom is on general assignment. You could be writing about the bay one day, and and uh, the um, you know, the, the frozen out uh, mechanical system of the Baltimore School Department or the county school department. I don't know if you've ever written about that, of course. But, but anyway, um, so the kinds of things that it seems to me the, uh, the newspaper does uh, um, is, is quite vast, actually. You know, today, if you were to look at the sun today, at the most read story, what do you suppose it would be about? The number of, of new coronavirus cases, right? I think that would be it, that, that number. Everybody wants to look at that to see whether are we emerging from this at all? Do we, is there any light at the end of the tunnel? So what else does the newspaper do? It promotes civic or community organization. The newspaper chooses our leader, our leaders, particularly when you have a newspaper that has been around for as long as the sun has been. Uh, if you're a very smart public official or a wannabe public official, you want to figure out how the sun operates and, and how it decides who it's going to endorse. And so we, the three of us, I think, could probably look at members of the General Assembly and, e and even possibly some former governors and say the Sun had, had its institutional eye on that person for a long time. And they've been interviewed by us over and over when they ran. Every time they ran, we sent out questionnaires, right? So we were in a position to do things for the voter that the voter probably could not do for him or herself. Um, and, and one, of, one of the other things that, that has come to me again recently is what the newspaper would do, I think, every day was supply the language that you would need to understand in order to understand the story that, that was being reported that day and then to talk about it. And the, the example that comes to my mind is the, the problems with the Baltimore Symphony over the past couple of years. They, they come back from the, this wonderful European tour 
and they get confronted with uh, essentially uh, big pay cuts and a shortened season, and they're fairly quickly they're on the street. Well, we're we're talking about the potential loss of a of an important uh, cultural um, aspect of the city of city life. Well, those the stories that were done by uh, Mary Mary Carol McCauley were uh, were just wonderful examples of what I'm talking about. The kinds of stories we needed in those days. I mean, there was all kinds of really abstruse information out there, like trust funds. The symphony has a trust fund, and the musicians were saying, if, if you're having a difficult time this year, if you can't pay us this year, why don't you take money from the trust fund? Well, then suddenly you find out that there are limits on how much money that can be taken from, from a trust fund. Who knew that? I mean, probably nobody. So. Suddenly that day, uh, Mary is writing very well-informed stories about what is going on here in this negotiation. And she's on the picket line, talking to us, doing what, what, all, what the three of us would remember having done over and over. You know, you're out there trying to find out what, what's really going on. So, once again, I will ask you, I will put you both on the spot again and, and uh, talk a little bit about a, a story where, uh, you know, uh, newspapers I always thought were sort of an example of uh, adult education. I mean, there was almost never a day when you weren't out having to understand something important about what was going on. And it could be pretty complicated material. You know, how did, it, how did the welfare system work? How did you qualify for, for aid to families with dependent children? I mean, you know, you had to learn that kind of stuff overnight, basically, in order to do and to provide something for people to talk about. So, so again, if, if you can give me uh, an example that, or not, we'll just move to the next thing. I have a very important and interesting next thing. Um, I want Hi, to read. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. Um, sorry to jump in, but we had, um, so sorry, Liz and Tom, I had muted you both, um, while Fraser was talking to try and, um, correct some of the audio issues with background noise. Um, so I'm hoping that helps out, um, for everyone. So sorry to jump in, but I just wanted to, um, what background noise are we talking about? There was just a little bit of, not that one, a little bit of ambient noise that I think was keeping um, people from also um, Fraser seeing you if they had Zoom set up in speaker view. Um, but I encourage everyone to use gallery view um, so you can see um, all of our speakers at once. Um, that's how we set it for our stream to Facebook. Okay, um, I hadn't noticed that, but um, thank you. Um, I want to um, I want to say something about the the management of the Baltimore Sun uh, when I was there and and before. 
I, I came there. The uh, once again, contrary to sometimes to uh, the views that some people have about how newspapers operate, the the Sun was scrup scrupulously uh, attuned to any indication that it was favoring any individual business in the city of Baltimore or the state of Maryland. And one of the stories was that a former uh, publisher of the paper, uh, William Schmick, who was involved in, in various uh, community things would uh, show up early at events where there was a dais and important people would be sitting there waiting for the dinner to begin. And he would uh, go up to the head table and, and walk to the length of the table to find out where, he, he, where the organizers of the dinner had him seated. He was concerned that if he, if he was sitting next to uh, one banker or another, or one car dealer or one furniture seller or another, that people might imagine that he was and that the newspaper was favoring that, that bank. So he would rearrange to the, uh, seating, the seating of the head table so that that did not happen. And uh, there was a particular story about, about something that happened with him. And I'll read a little bit about that. Uh, and this is a little, there's a little politics in this as well. Um, uh, good newspapers had rules against any sort of relationship with public figures or lobbyists. If reporters dined or drank with politicians, they were to pick up the check. At the Baltimore Sun, I learned years later, the Democratic Party, 1890 era bosses, openly courted the newspaper's editorial staff. They, they, the Democratic Party, believe it or not, wanted the editorial staff to uh, uh, duplicate their views of, of what was going on in the state. So they, decided that they they uh, they decided that they were going to that the Democrats who had uh, connections in Washington were going to offer a really plum ambassadorial uh, plum to uh, one of the sons of A.S. Abel, the founder of the newspaper. They were actually going to make him uh, the ambassador to uh, to the to the court of St. James in London. And of course, he turned it down immediately. Um, and the 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 Democrats said, nothing nothing can be done with such men. And of course, the son loved hearing that that. Uh, the the paper took obsessive care in keeping its distance from bankers, car dealers, realtors, developers, etc. As a matter of practice, the newspapers chose not to mention the name of, this was really over the top, but they, as a matter of practice, the newspaper chose not to mention the name of a store or other business hit by a fire or robbery, lest that be seen as favoring that business. 
Should Hustler's department store in Baltimore be so afflicted? The newspaper would identify the fire's location as 101 Saratoga Street without saying that it was the Hustler's building. Uh, in, in the 1980s, when the newspaper began to cover consumer affairs of the car dealers, uh, came, came, one, of the, one of the dealers came in to complain about a story exploring car salesman shenanigans. If that sort of coverage did not end, he told the publisher, he was pulling his rather substantial ad, a lot of money. And Schmick said something like, be my guest. And so the man did. Um, he took his, he took out his, he took, he withdrew his ad. And time went by, perhaps a month or so. And he returned to the, to Mr. Schmick's office to say that he was, he was ready to uh, stop the punishment of the paper and resume his ad. And Schmeck said, well, you know, right now, we, just, we don't have any space right now. So, you know, the, the punishment suddenly shifted over to the other side of the scale there. Um, and it, you know, I, I, I heard similar stories. And the only example I can remember of the, uh, the thumb being on the scales you know, something else getting involved in, in, the, in news judgment was when I was on the editorial staff and there was that whole issue of people being bothered every night at dinner time by someone, call, someone calling them to, to try to sell them something. And so to deal with it, there was a do not call list that was developed and the editorial chief at the time told us that we were not to write about that, which is somewhat shocking, actually. But by this time, the, the owning family had gone, gone its way. But and this, we were owned by then by Chicago, and they were they were uh, telling us we couldn't write about it. We couldn't say yes or no about it. And it turned out there was a real money issue there. It was something like 70% of their new subscriptions came from cold calling, from the very thing that was supposed to be prevented by, by <coughs> the do not call list. But for the most part, I think most of us, uh, Tom and, and Liz, tell me if I'm wrong. I, I think we one of the other things we were blessed with was uh, a, a newspaper that was really uh, assiduously above board. Uh, I don't, I don't, I, I can't think of a, of a time when I, I was uh, warned off a story or when I heard of a story that, that we couldn't do. I don't think that ever happened. So once again, we were, we were really kind of in our careers, we were sort of blessed. So I think, oh. I think maybe, I think maybe now we've gotten to a point where we can talk about something that's almost newsy. Uh, this is the point where where I shift the uh, the speaking role to Liz because I think she can. I'm sure that that one of our listeners 
or more will want us to talk about what the future is of the Baltimore Sun. And Liz has a very important role in trying to figure that out. And I hope that maybe she can, uh, I know that she can bring us up to speed on where all that stands. Go ahead, Liz, if you can. Um, I just unmuted myself. Um, last um, year, about this time, uh, Alden Global Capital, we call it Alden Capital, um, is that, which is a hedge fund, purchased a third of the stock in Tribune Company, um, publishing company, which owns um, about eight or nine large newspapers in the US. And that was a really shock, a real blow to our newspaper and the chain because Alden has a reputation for really bleeding um, papers dry. Um, and it is, it's already owns um, hundreds of small newspapers, uh, mostly small newspapers, and it has used um, very vicious tactics, I think, um, in trying to um, get absolutely as much money as they can from the newspapers and then leaving them with almost no staff and trying to extract as much money from them before they kind of dump them on the side of the road. So um, at that point, um, I worked with some other people in Baltimore who have long wanted to own the Sun. Um, the Able Foundation, um, Ted Venatoulis and Matt Gallagher at um, Goldsecker Foundation. And we began meeting um, uh, shortly before the coronavirus set in. Um, and over the course of the next uh, six months, what we did was we founded um, Save Our Sun, which is, and, and created a website called saveoursun.com. And um, the foundations in Baltimore uh, have been very interested for a number of years and are still interested and still have considerable uh, financial heft behind them um, and are interested in purchasing the paper at a reasonable cost. Um, and there have been negotiations, which I really can't go into, but um, they have made, there have been discussions back and forth, but nothing has happened. I think what was, what's been interesting is the whole Cybersun effort really drew in huge amount of community support, political support. Um, it's very hard for reporters to um, go out and, and say that to the public, we need your help because we've never asked for help before. Um, but it, it is really necessary, I think, for uh, the paper to be owned locally. Um, the reason I say that is because I really believe that there is, we're still generating a, a profit. And if, the, if that profit, profit was able to be plowed back into the paper, it would be a much more robust paper with more reporters, more um, energy to it. And I think it would be more locally connected. Um, I think it would increase the sense of community um, and I think local ownership would be great for the paper. I, the, the question is um, how that happens. Interestingly, and, and the, the foundations, if they are ever able to get the sun, would make it into a nonprofit, 
The Sun is not unusual. Of the 200 largest papers in the country, 70% of them are now owned by hedge funds. Um, and hedge funds are generally not interested in, in journalism as much as they are just straight like making money. And I think that meant that there's a growing uh, national consensus that um, these newspapers are, as Fraser was saying, very important to our functioning of democracy. There have been a number of um, prominent politicians recently, Obama and um, Andrew Yang, who have taken interest in this. And there's now a, um, a movement. While, while I think there's, there's, a, there's a growing interest in digital uh, startups, you know, small news organizations that focus on a particular topic, and are started. Um, there's the Texas Tribune, there's Chalkbeat, which is an education um, online publication in a number of cities. Um, and there, there are many of them. We have the Baltimore Brew here. Um, but they have not been able to, to um, produce enough revenue and generate both income and a sustainable um, support in terms of donations to increase their size, to make them as large as some, you know, a newspaper, a legacy newspaper like The Sun. So there is an effort now underway um, by both the News Guild, which represents journalists around the country, um, and, and others to begin um, to think about what the future of those legacy newspapers might be. Um, and to get them back into local soil, so to speak. Um, there's Steve Waldman is a man who has just founded um, something called Report for America, which is very similar to uh, Teach for America. If you know that model, it's exactly the same, except it's providing newspapers to um, small, uh, young reporters to funding young reporters to put them in newspapers across the country. It started with small papers and now the Sun ha actually has two of those reporters today. Um, in any event, his plan is to create a one, to raise a billion dollars and to um, use that money to encourage um, hedge funds to sell newspapers to local owners and to create nonprofits. There's also an effort to, uh, there's federal legislation that's being written by a number of members of Congress, as well as um, in collaboration with others that would create streams of revenue streams that could help support local news, local newspapers. And there's also, um, most people don't know this, but Google and Facebook have lapped up about 70% of local advertising away from, from newspapers. And so we, we need to get some of that revenue stream back, some people believe. Um, and there's also the idea of creating a, uh, a, a similar model for newspapers like public broadcasting. So it would be the, the um, a public journalism uh, model. Um, so there, there are various new um, ideas that have been floating around that I think they've taken on 
increased urgency during this period of coronavirus when revenues, when newspaper revenues have really declined dramatically. But I also think that um, the current situation um, that we find ourselves in where half the population has a different set of facts than the other half of the population has led people to believe that we need more fact-based reporting across the country and that the death of these small newspapers, um, particularly in rural areas, has really harmed democracy, that the language and the um, information that once was commonplace um, is no longer. Liz, um, what do you think makes this proposition more likely to happen today than, say, eight or nine years ago when Ben Cardin and others tried to do it and found it not to be sustainable? I mean, did it have to do with the, uh, the price of, of the paper then versus now? Does it make it more uh, possible that you could swing the deal? <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, I think, I don't know that it's, you know, I think the problem right now is that many of these hedge funds are making enough profit that they don't want to let go of the newspapers. Um, and I think that we may come to a point, I mean, one of the, some of these large change that, chains that are now owned by hedge funds um, are, have a huge amount of debt. And I think we may shortly see bankruptcies, and that might provide an opportunity for those papers to get back into local ownership. But um, in the case of Tribune, they have no debt and they have $90 million um, of cash in hand. So there's not a huge incentive and they're making a profit even during the coronavirus. So um, I think we have to make it um, Incentivize, we have to have federal legislation that incentivizes the sale of new, small newspapers or medium-sized newspapers um, to local owners. And we build local, uh, the idea of, of the community owning its own newspaper. When you were, uh, when you and your group were doing your investigation of the, uh, of the, uh, the environment where this could or could not happen, did you find that people were aware of, of what the threat was to the sun, for example? Uh, no, I, I, you know, I, I would be interested. Terms. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear what Tom has to say about this, but my general sense is that the public doesn't really recognize um, the threat to local news. And I don't, I don't think that reporters have been, and newspapers have done a good job of, of informing the public about this. We haven't. And one of the uh, great ironies of life is that newspapers have been um, terrible at telling their story over the years. Uh, and it goes, it goes even back to talking about the uh, First Amendment. We wrapped our arms around the First Amendment and says, said that's ours. It's freedom of the press. It's about a lot more than just freedom of the press, but we didn't, uh, we're starting to now, we did not build a lot of uh, public uh, advocacy in, uh, in, on behalf of the, of the First Amendment. Over the last four years, I think some people have gotten a crash course in what we, it might look like with a distressed First Amendment and, and, and they don't like it. Um, but no, I, I don't think there's, I think there's beginning to be an understanding of um, what's being lost but um, it's not 
universal enough or deep enough, I don't think, uh, to where people um, are, are really ready, ready to mobilize around that. Um, I'll give you a small example. We were driving through North Carolina last year and stopped uh, to get the hamburger. Uh, and uh, the there was a copy of the local paper there. And I picked it up and I thought, well, this is, this was, uh, it's pretty heavy. This, this was during the week. And I thought, well, there are a lot of uh, stories in here. Let me see what these are about. And I started flipping the pages. I couldn't find a story about the town we were in. I found stories about one town over, two towns over, this county. They were all owned by the same company and they were just sharing material. So the local newspaper had hardly anything that was truly local in it. And the more that happens and the more people um, encounter that and don't like that, um, that's uh, one level at which we're going to need to have some traction, I think, before people will begin to say, wait a minute, this is, this is a bad thing. It's bad for our community. It's bad for our democracy. We, we lack readers. We have plenty of readers. We just need yes. rest. Um, That's right. Uh, and I'll tell you this, too. There is uh, there's no shortage of people who want to get into journalism. Um, I mean, I was still teaching at Maryland as recently as a year and a half ago. My classes were full. There were a lot of kids who wanted to get into journalism. Now, what they're going to do and what form it's going to take and can they get a job? You know, but they're not being scared away, at least certainly that they weren't at the University of Maryland. What's been going on has really made them more eager to try to get into the field. And I got to thinking about that. When I got into journalism in, in Georgia, it was uh, the civil rights movement. And there was a wave of people uh, my age who got into it because we wanted to make a difference. We wanted to write about segregation and help change that system. And if you think about it, uh, the same was true with the Vietnam War, the same was true after uh, Watergate. And I really think the same is gonna be true with Trump. I think there's gonna be a lot of reaction People want to get into the profession to make sure something like this doesn't happen again or try to enact some reforms or whatever. Um, so my hunch is there will be raw material there in terms of people. The question is going to be, can we design and using maybe some of the models that you were talking about, you know, can, can we design a new uh, modus operandi for management and, and for ownership? Um, that is going to provide enough stability where these people uh, who want to get into the profession can get a job and make a decent living doing it. We're not there yet. We are. That's why, that's why the three of us are in a position to talk about news journalism at all, isn't it? The unions. Um, when, we, when I started anyway, we were, uh, and this was true at the Sun as well, but I didn't start at the Sun, but uh, newspaper reporters didn't get paid very much. You weren't sure you were gonna be able to uh, own a house for your family. And I think some of us just went ahead anyway, not, not knowing when that was gonna change. But we, and when I was in Providence, we had a, an extremely good lawyer and we struck often. And, and, it, and it worked. Um, it's not something that anybody wants to do. Um, I mean, I can remember sometimes being on the street, picketing on the street and, and thinking, we're, we're giving this company, a, when we're in the building, we're giving them a lot better paper than apparently they need. 
you know, because they were still selling and, and having the same kind of uh, circulation they always had. Uh, and they just, all they had to do was deal with whatever uh, criticism they might get from the community at large. But, but um, that was all working to our advantage and over, over the, I think pretty much over the course of my career anyway, uh, the unions continued to get strong. Now, of course, there was a point where they also started losing their strength. Well, I'll tell you now that that is completely reversed. Um, just a year and a half ago, the Baltimore Sun was the only unionized paper, I believe, in Tribune. Now every single newsroom is union. Um, it's, it's spreading wildly across the country. Um, our union is growing so fast um, that the leadership can barely keep up with it. The interesting thing about that is also that there's far different leadership in the unions now. Um, the News Guild is headed by somebody who's young. He's come in recently and his mission, he believes, is to figure out the new model for journalism. So instead of um, you know, putting all their, their energy into increasing um, pay, and while that they want that as well, tons of money and energy is now going into figuring out how to preserve local journalism. It's a really interesting um, move. There's, there's numbers of people who have spent months working on nothing but federal legislation to figure out a way that, you know, papers can be sold to incentivize the sale of newspapers. Um, it's, a, it's a new union and a new day. And I think the union is only growing much, much stronger recently. The, uh, and again, I think it brings us around to the, to the start of all of this. Uh, it's important to have as many newspapers as possible. The, 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 former, um, uh, the former director of the, uh, the School of Journalism in California, who was actually, uh, I'm not going to be able to remember his name, but he also he worked for the Providence Journal and the and the uh, Washington Post. Maybe his name will come to you, Tom. At any rate, his view was that for democracy, you had to have a lot of outlets. You had to have a lot of opportunities for people to learn important issues. I mean, of course, today we may wonder if more newspapers wouldn't create more understanding of what. Anthony Fauci and, and the other epidemiologists are trying to tell us about how we need to behave during this pandemic. And, and, the, and the guy that I, whose name I can't remember uh, was a, somebody that campaigned against uh, uh, mass, owner, <clears throat> mass ownership of news outlets and the how they would tend to reduce the numbers that were there. And so that the, the opportunities for people to see the news or to read the news was being, was being suffocated even then, you know, 15, 20 years ago. So in some ways it's not a new thing. Um, but, and, and of course, there was a, a poll recently in, in, in the same uh, line that showed that 
only about 17% of a poll that I think it might have been done by Pew uh, Charitable Trust that said like 17% of the people that had been surveyed were aware that newspapers were in trouble. And again, I think as Tom, as you said, I think that's the newspaper's fault. I don't think we ever did a good job of covering ourselves. No. I mean, we told ourselves uh, nobody cared. Of course, now they do. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, I, uh, I I thank you all uh, so much for uh, for coming to join me tonight on this. I'm, I can't tell whether there are any uh, audience questions. At one point, I thought there were. Uh, Tracy, can you help us a little bit on this? Yes, so there aren't um, any questions at the moment, but so I'd encourage people if they do have some questions to go ahead and post them. So for um, the next few minutes, we can take them before closing. Um, but I did what I wanted to um, ask all of you after this discussion, um, and we've been touching on it a little bit, um, but where do you see um, the next generation of reporters really getting their strength? Um, strength in um, either strength in numbers or changing the... Um, the uh, industry. Tom um, Stan, the guy who. Uh, <laughs> <It's difficult. laughs> I mean, if I were if I were Tom and I were still in a journalism class, or or Sandy Beniski, I, I would find that uh, an incredibly different, difficult question to answer. Of course, they're not having to recruit Tom, as you point out, and people want no. to do this. Right. You know, um, one of your uh, colleagues in, in many guises, Tom, used to, uh, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Barbieri. Yes. I don't know if he's still teaching or not. He was teaching at Penn State. But I think he is. He would, he, I don't know if he's still doing this, but he would say to kids, he would say, do, do you have a laptop? And of course they all did. And he said, well, you want to be a foreign correspondent, go to Beijing and take your laptop and just, you know, just dive, just go for it and, and, uh, and string and do whatever you, you can to uh, feed yourself while you're doing it. You, you can't, if this is something you really want to do, you may be in a situation with the industry now where you have to take that leap. I don't think anybody wants to encourage that very much, but I mean, what are the options? Well, but a, a lot of that is is happening. I mean, you, you really have put your finger on something there, uh, Fraser, because with the plethora of um, uh, media outlets um, available through the Internet, that's a lot. And the fact that the Internet doesn't have to worry about column inches and and uh, ad holes and whatever, that's that's an awful lot of content. That's a limitless uh, amount of content that's needed in these sources. And so an enterprising uh, young journalist with a laptop can go out, find a good story, and probably find a way to uh, place it um, much easier than could have been done back in our day. So I think that's where they'll, to answer your question, Tracy, or try to, I think that's where they're going to get a lot of their strength is just the, the uh, plethora of opportunities 
to place content. And your original placement, uh, unless it's a questionable and disreputable website, doesn't really matter because once it gets on the internet, it takes on a life of its own, as we all know, and it can be picked up uh, by anybody and shared here and tweeted there and whatever. So uh, you don't have to be writing for the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal to start to uh, get attention for your for your work on, on uh, through the internet. So, um, Tracy, how are we doing? No, still no questions. Um, no other questions. We are a little over time too. The conversation between the three of you has just been excellent. So I want to thank you all for being here. And Frazier, thank you for writing The Daily Miracle. So actually, Frazier, I need to post in the chat how people can get in touch with you to get a copy of the book. Good. Well, of, uh, course, so of course, you know, Tracy, they, they can go to Amazon, but they can also go directly to me, uh, 5903. Yorkwood Road, Baltimore, 21239. And if, and if people want to do it that way, of course, they'll get my fabulous signature when the book arrives in their <laughs> mailbox. I talked to Fraser about this the other day, Tracy, and he said, you know, I am my own fulfillment center. So all they have to do is contact me personally. That's right. I thought, what a great concept. I love it. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm learning how to be a, I'm becoming an entrepreneur, you know, <laughs> at this late stage in my life. But, uh, but you know, we do what we have to do. And um, I hope people will buy the book because I, I really care about the subject very much. And I um, care about the people that I worked with very much. And uh, I, I want the story to get out there. And I think I think there are a lot of people that care about about the news and they understand its importance. I mean, obviously there are things that need to happen uh, in our society. Uh, we could, we could all make a list of the uh, of the kinds of things that newspapers ought to be doing in our society. Uh, you you have to pay for it, though. You know, people have to realize that they're going to have to. Uh, they're going to have to pay for the news, and, and uh, because you have to, you have to have people reporters. Are, yeah, you have to have people that are, that, that are hungry to go out there and talk to other people and see what makes the world work, to see uh, who who we are, to really try to understand who we are as a people, what what motivates them. You know, when I one of the things I remember about when I started in uh, in Providence. When, when speakers came to town, we wrote about them. Somebody came with, with an interesting, uh, with an idea that they wanted to talk about. We'd cover it. I um, mean, these were the days when, when there was a reporter available or could be made available to cover uh, operations like that. But you know, you would, be, you would be telling people things that they didn't know. That'd be one of the sort of teaching uh, elements of journalism. It was it was important, and uh, once again, I mean, t in in a way, I was I was a little bit like Tom was saying he was. You know, people are going to pay me to go and, and listen to smart people talk. You know, where do I start? Let me let me go and do some more of that. 
So, so we know where we are here, or at least some of us do, and we just uh, we have to be uh, grateful for uh, Vanatulis and, uh, and and Goldsecker. And I, I, I am always struck by the wonderful irony of A.S. Abel being part of this, since it all began with uh, Aruna S. Abel, and I, I, I believe it was uh, 1838. And, um, you know, he had a great idea. His idea was, and it was contrary to what all the other competing papers thought, we're not writing for businesses. Great, if they want to read our paper, we're happy to have them. But our paper is going to be directed to people that want to know what's going on in the business world because they're consumers of what businesses are providing. And so we're gonna, we're gonna aim our, our publication at those people. And the, the competition wasn't terrific apparently according to the sun history of those days. But within a year or so, everyone, I think there were six competitors when Abel came to Baltimore. And by, by the end of a year or two, there were none except for the sun. So you give the people what they want and, and they need, and uh, maybe that'll help us uh, find our way again. Doesn't seem like a bad idea to me. I like it. Let's give it a shot. Exactly. <laughs> so Tracy, I think I think we're I think we're 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 finished. I think we've. I mean, of course, we could go on, as you can tell. I know and there's I mean there's so much to like why it's called the daily miracle there's so much to just the daily drama and the daily work that goes into creating the content within a paper and the stories that people want to have so thank you Frazier for writing the book and thank you Tom and Liz for sharing your insight tonight um I think we can all walk away knowing that we need these papers and um, we will keep fighting for them. So thank you for being here this evening. Thank you um, to the Hearing and Speech Agency as well for signing. And of course, thank you everyone for joining us tonight. So have a great rest of your evening. Thanks so much, everyone. Take care. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.